All right, excellent. So we're up to the Yoridea portion of the Shubas of the Gaidul Shwartz as published in the latest uh, edition of Hadarom. Just wanted to go through kind of the highlights of the different Shubas to focus on different issues that Rabbi Schwartz uh, dealt with and some of the halakhic uh, considerations, some of the um, situations he may have been uh, dealing with, and how uh, we can also uh, glean his uh, style of, uh, of sak uh, a little bit from the tshubas. The first one is about bloodshot bishchita, um, and the word bloodshot is an English word, but it's uh, transliterated into, into Hebrew uh, for purposes of the title of the tshuva. And um, this was um, a proposal uh, that was made by one of the slaughterhouses in the 1990s or so, that after shechting the animals, uh, they w- wanted the, um, the workers, if not the shochet himself, to cut the animal's uh, spinal cord uh, after the shechita, the chita shedra, the spinal cord, which is kind of right in the middle of the neck area, what we call the mafreket, now after the shkita would be over, in order to avoid a gathering of blood in the different areas, if you cut the spinal cord, it enables the blood to leave much more freely, and this way you avoid bloodshot. Uh, when this is done, it's generally done when the animal is still mepacheset, when the animal is still um, uh, uh, kicking around, and uh, is still uh, not completely dead from the purpose of halacha, the uh, animal is considered to be nishchat, is considered to be shechted, so you uh, would technically be allowed to eat the animal, not for Baal Tashaksu, but uh, nonetheless, uh, there is still life that's left in uh, the animal. So the question is, is this something which is permissible? And there are uh, really a, a few issues uh, that are implicated according to halacha. One issue is that uh, we paskin. Uh, that uh, you're not allowed to have any kind of a pause during uh, the shkita itself. Uh, that's what shihia. It's one of the five different psulim, five different ways that you can invalidate a shkita. Halacha Sinai, five different ways you can uh, invalidate a shkita, shihia, drasa, hagrama, chalada, and ikor. And one and shihia means uh, that you have a delay uh, in, the, in the middle of the shkita process. But what if you've already Shechted the rov of the simanim with an animal. You just have to shech the majority of the veshet and the kane of uh, the esophagus and uh, the um, uh, and the windpipe and uh, the trachea, esophagus and the trachea. And once you have shechted the majority of those two simanim, so then the animal is shechted. So what if you paused a little bit and then you shechted um, uh, the remainder, the mute, uh, the minority of the simanim? that was left over in the animal that didn't even need to be shafted. So we uh, are, are, are machmir. This is uh, the source of base and the materials on page two. We'll skip the first source because it's not immediately a germane. It's just sort of a, a side point about Jerasa. Um, and uh, the Ramah says that the minag is lahatrif. The minag is even bidiyevit. If there's any shihia at all, then the animal is going to be considered to be a trepa, uh, even if uh, the majority of the simanim have already been shechted. So that's one issue, that if after the shokhe has shechted through the simanim, uh, and then he goes and he um, cuts through the mafreket, so he might cut through the area near the mafreket, near the neck. The mafreket is the neck, so it's not an actual simon of the animal, but it's right next to the veshet, it's uh, right next to the, uh, the esophagus. It might be a little bit of the esophagus that wasn't shafted yet, it's now going to be shafted, and there'll be a pause in the middle, so that's going to be a shahir, the miut basra. So that's going to be a little bit uh, of, a, um, uh, of a problem. So the Bach says, uh, that uh, in the event uh, that, let's say, it's not the shokhet himself who does this, like, knocking around uh, afterwards, uh, or, you know, the completion of cutting off the simanim, but let's say it's somebody else who is not a bar shkita altogether. It's a nakri, it's a non-Jewish worker uh, who happens to be at the slaughterhouse who does it, so then that's not considered to be a problem. The shach in uh, Simen Beis, uh, Sifkata and Achav Zayin, uh, says that he doesn't really think that there's a chiluk behu benacher, that there is this is source dalad on page two. He doesn't think that there's a distinction whether the shochet does it or whether a different shochet does it or even a non-Jew would do it. Um, and the only time that it would be okay is if there would be no shihia. So the primagodim over there, who's not in the material, says, We pass in the halacha, that if a non-Jewish worker is the one who completes uh, the uh, shkita, who completes uh, cutting off the last 
um, minority of the simanim that don't even need to be shechted altogether because the shkita is already kosher. So then that's not going to pass the shkita and we can rely upon that. So therefore, if that's what we're talking about over here, that we're talking about uh, that uh, the one who's going uh, to um, uh, do uh, the uh, cutting of the animal's spinal cord after the shkita is a nachri, um, so then you won't have the problem, according to the Bach, according to the Primagodim, of Shihia, of having a pause in the Shkita process, B'miut Basra, in the last portion of the Shkita um, procedure, and that therefore it's not going to passel the animal. And if you look at the Shaila here, in Simon Aleph, you could see... I have yes. a question. Let's say the Shokhe did his thing, we'll call it, right? And he puts the, puts the knife down, and whatever, and then two minutes later, he goes back to finish up. Right. So if the animal is no longer um, kicking around, uh-huh. uh, then and the animal is 100% dead, there is no problem with anything that you do to an animal after the animal is dead. We cut the animal into all kinds of different pieces, uh, up right. and down and all around, right. once an animal is dead. So that's not going to be a problem. The problem here is what we're talking about, if it's the animal okay. is already dead. Yes, yes. Okay, when there's still pure close in the animal. So the question that was posed is, what's a good question? Is this going to be permissible if you do it through a non-Jew a few, you know, a few seconds after the shkita is, is, is done? And the other, um, I guess, uh, sort of um, beneficial point is below b'derek shkita klal, that it's not being done with a regular knife in a fashion of shkita, because the Chassam Sofer speaks about that in source Gimel quoted by the Biskei Let's say that uh, the final part of the Simanim would be cut by a scissors, so he uh, indicates that maybe that would be, you know, more lenient because it's not even a Meister Shkito, although he says that he wouldn't rely upon that, but certainly if it's done by a non-Jew and it's done, not in a fashion of Shkito, so that could be okay. The second problem is... Yes? But doesn't the, the, the actual act of Shkito that takes the animal's life have to be one continuous act. So doesn't the, the, the inherent hefsek here, isn't that in itself the problem? Well, it would be a hefsek if you didn't do the Maisa Shkita, but you did do the Maisa Shkita. You completed the Shkita, because Shkita requires Roba Simanim to be cut. The Shokhe accepted the Roba Simanim. He accepted the majority of the two different um, organs that need to be cut through in their majority. One is the esophagus and the other is the trachea, the, the, veshit, the veshit and the kane. They were both cut, you know, for the majority of them, of, the, the, of, of, their, um, of their space. Uh, so therefore, uh, the uh, shkita was already a kosher shkita. If the shkita would not have been a kosher shkita, so yeah, of course you would have a problem. That would be a problem shahir of any, any kind of delay whatsoever. It would for sure be a problem. Okay, so the second issue is that the, if you cut the neck altogether, so there's a machlokis between the machaber and the ramah in Simon Chavdalet about whether that would uh, potentially cause uh, the shkita to become no good. And it's mashman that the ramah holds, and this is according to certain Rishonim, it's based on a Rashi uh, in, um, uh, in Maseches uh, Hulin, um, where Rashi uh, indicates uh, that uh, there is a possibility uh, that maybe once that you would cut the mafreket, the neck of the animal, it would cause kind of the uh, blood to become trapped inside of the animal because of the fact that the uh, animal becomes stiff uh, in some uh, fashion at that point and it prevents uh, the blood from being able to leave uh, afterwards. Uh, so you have Havlaz Dam Be'ibarim, in which case uh, you're not going to be able to kasher the animal uh, properly. However, um, uh, the reality is that most of the uh, later Mephorshim say that this is a tremendous chumr, and probably the Ramah did not mean to be machmir about this either. And if you look at one of the Mishodim, who's machmir about this, about worrying that whenever the neck gets uh, uh, cut or broken, it's going to be mavliya dam be'evarim, it's going to cause uh, the blood to get trapped inside of uh, the organs, and it won't be able to come out. All that means is that the dam is pirish, that the dam moves around, and, and therefore, once the dam moves around from place to place, normally you'd be allowed to eat meat raw. Most people don't know this, that we say you have to do malika, you have to salt the uh, meat in order for the uh, blood to come out. Uh, but if you didn't salt the meat and you just ate the meat raw after it was shechted, so then it would be uh, 100% kosher. Why is that? Because blood is only prohibited when the blood moves around from place to place. It only moves around from place to place once you cook uh, the, uh, the, the animal. But here, um, once you've, uh, uh, you, you've the, the animal has suffered the trauma, 
uh, shall we say, of having the neck sliced open, uh, so the blood is going to move around, and therefore you're not going to be allowed to eat it raw. But, says the Rashba, uh, once uh, you would salt it, uh, so then it would be okay. And since we salt our meat before we eat it, even if you roast meat, our minute is that we salt it a little bit before we roast it. Um, so therefore, uh, that's probably not going to be a problem. The shock says that uh, even if you hold like the most mockly position, uh, that we're worried it's not going to come out, that's only if you don't cut it up into little pieces. But we generally cut up our meat before we salt it into a bunch of different uh, pieces. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, since we cut up our uh, salt, and Moshe Feinstein has a chuva about this, because he had a, the question as to whether 30 seconds after shkita, you would be allowed to, let's say, shoot the animal with a non-penetrating captive bolt. Captive bolt. Um, that was just also for you know purposes of uh, being able to uh, uh, ensure that uh, the animal not kick around for uh, for too long, uh, and it wasn't uh, a penetrating bolt or anything like that. Would that be okay? If Moshe Feinstein thought that uh, that would be okay, number one, this wasn't even the mafreket, so you didn't have you need to stun the animal. Yeah, to stun the animal afterwards, about thirty seconds after the shkita would take place. That was the question that was posed to uh, Rav Moshe. And Rav Moshe said that there's a Ramah, first of all, that says that if you hit the animal on the head, it would be after the Shkita, that would be okay. So he said that even if you're worried that the blood is going to get trapped, the reality is that the pieces, that's only if you didn't do Malicha, on smaller pieces, once you have smaller pieces, then the blood has the opportunity to get out, especially if you do a combination of cutting into smaller pieces and doing malicha, that's going to be okay. And Rav Moshe was writing at the time that before the butchers would actually do malicha, not only would you cut the meat into the big pieces that we have nowadays, like we have the chuck and the rib and the brisket and the, uh, and the plate, uh, these big pieces, they would also cut it into much smaller pieces, like they would have um, uh, like the, the short ribs, you know, that we have nowadays, and they would only do malicha afterwards. So he said that for sure you could be mako based on that. But Rav Moshe actually had an easier case because he didn't have a case where they were cutting the neck, where you have an actual shita based on Rashi that says maybe cutting the neck is going to be a problem, you know, of course, uh, uh, no matter what. And you're never going to be able to get out uh, the um, the blood even with um, with, with salting. Um, uh, so, uh, so so this case is, uh, that Rav Schwartz was talking about was a little bit more difficult, but nonetheless, he did quote Rav Moshe uh, along uh, these lines um, and um, therefore said that based on the consideration that, uh, number one, um, uh, the, if you, you, you're going to salt the, the meat, number two, um, that you're going to cut the meat up into little pieces, you know, before you, uh, before you salt the meat, um, and, um, and, number, uh, and number three, um, uh, that, uh, the, um, that this uh, whole uh, shita um, uh, that we have over here uh, regarding um, uh, the, um, uh, the cutting of the mafreket, where the Ramah said that you have to be machmir, the shach said that since most of the posts can disagree with the Ramah, so when you have a hefsi meruba, um, you can be mekel. So we see that if you have a big law, so you can be mekel. So he said that there's more room to be mekel over here, uh, over here as well. Um, and um, uh, and in, in addition, Schwartz pointed out it's not going to be derech shkita because it's going to be done by a, a non-Jew, so you don't have to worry about the idea of the shihia, you know, towards uh, the end of uh, the end of the process. Uh, and he brings an analogous situation involving some uh, tikkun, some something having to do with uh, butchers in um, uh, the 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 shosh the shochtim in uh, in Germany, uh, where they wanted um, them to. Um, uh, to, to also break um, uh, break the neck of birds uh, after uh, they break the uh, the spinal cord of birds after they would shecht uh, the birds and uh, the postkim spoke about under what circumstances it could be permissible if it would be done through a non-Jew <coughs> be done after the other organs uh, were had already been pierced etc etc so therefore uh, based on all of these different considerations um, uh, Rav Schwartz said I think that we could be lenient in this particular case to avoid the bloodshot that is going to be done after the shkita is already finished anyway and I think that it's going to be okay but then we have something which is very characteristic about Rav Schwartz's style of Sack of Schwartz was you know he knew how to get along with everybody um, and he had a tremendous amount of deference to people who were in the industry you know in, when it comes to um, Hashkachos not every Hashkacha is involved with Shkita because as Schwartz used to like to say you know, Shkita is very much a cutthroat industry the, um, you know, it's, uh, the people who are involved are a little bit rougher and tougher than in other areas of Akashris and uh, Rav Schwartz can handle his own I mean I used to walk with Rav Schwartz 
to the slaughterhouses. You know, years ago, he put on his hard hat and, you know, be marching through and their blood is all over the place and Schwartz, you know, he can, you know, handle it, you know, as, uh, you know, like as, as much as, you know, the toughest of them. Uh, and uh, he, he was, you know, completely impervious uh, to, to it all. Um, but he also had a lot of respect for those people in the industry and for uh, any precedent as well. So he did learn that the second Avbezdin of the Chicago Rabbinical Car- uh, Council, his name was Rabbi Saw Mayor Carno. We have a picture of him, you know, on the wall um, at the offices of uh, the Bezdin of the Chicago Rabbinical Council. Uh, so apparently Rabbi Carno um, has had a policy that in his day, they also wanted to cut the spinal cord. And he said that um, you, he would only allow it if they would wait until three more animals were shafted and only cut the spinal cord afterwards. So the truth is, if you're going to wait till three more animals, even if you're like, you know, really, really fast at shafting animals, I mean, especially you're talking about big animals, gossips over here, each one takes at least 30 seconds. I mean, this is going to be a minute and a half later, the first animal's not going to be alive anymore. Yeah, first animal's not alive, it's no chiddish. You know, you don't have to worry about mablia, dam, bevar, nothing, no blood is getting trapped or any problem is existing once the animal is already dead. So therefore, um, Rav Schwartz said, I don't want to go against um, the takano or the ruling that has already been made by, um, uh, by, Rabbi, uh, by Rabbi Karno. And uh, secondly, he said, I see that, you know, the shoktim in general, and especially the chasidish mashkiach of this particular slaughterhouse, doesn't really go for this idea, and I don't want to make waves. He said that, that you know, the of the base mitbachayim, there's another shkita over here as well, tachas pichucham shalrav chasidi, it's a chasidish, you know, rav who's, uh, who, who, who doesn't uh, countenance this idea of uh, cutting the, uh, the mafreket, the neck of the animal afterwards, shlonos nimishus, Lasso's canal, and he's not giving permission. So said Rabbi Schwartz, I don't want to get into a machlokus. So Schwartz, in general, did not want to get into a machlokus, even if he felt that there was room for leniency. There was one, and I remember once, where Schwartz gave a psaac that the uh, RCA, the Medical Council of America, asked him, what do we do in a year that uh, Yom Ha'atzma'ud falls out on uh, Friday, for example, but in Eretz Yisrael, they're celebrating it, you know, on Thursday, or falls out on Sunday, and they're celebrating it on Monday, you know, in order to avoid a chil Shabbos consideration. So Schwartz said, we don't have those considerations over here. Anybody who celebrates is from anyway. We're not going to violate Shabbos. We don't have like big parades or anything like that. So we should still celebrate it on Heir and, you know, not to change the date. And then the Rabbinut Rashi got, got, got a win of Rav Schwartz's ruling and they started to complain bitterly. You're creating a big, you know, friction in Klai Yisrael that in Israel we're going to celebrate on one day in America you're going to be celebrated on the other day and we can't have such a thing. And Rav Schwartz said, I don't want to create friction with the Rabbinut Rashi. I still think that my Psaac is correct, but I, I, I retract. I retract my ruling because I, I don't want to create waves. That was very much Rav Schwartz's style. However, Rav Schwartz did not have that style when it dealt with, um, when it came to individual um, uh, life-affecting situations. So if he was dealing with an Aguna problem, and he had all the bottom of the world screaming, you can't be mocked this Aguna, you don't have a basis, or Schwartz felt he had a basis, he would go against everybody else. It came to uh, holding that a pers- particular person was not a Kohen, so he can marry a Gioris or a Grusha or something like that, um, and the entire family is screaming at him, what are you doing to our family, how could you come to such a conclusion? But Schwartz didn't, it, 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 it didn't budge. When, when it came to those types of determinations, when he felt that somebody's future life and welfare was at stake, so then he was in effect. It's very, very interesting. So he had kind of like uh, this um, um, bifurcation between the different types of cases. But in this case, you certainly see, you know, that um, uh, that um, tendency um, in um, uh, in effect where Schwartz uh, felt that there were good grounds to be makel, even though his case was a more difficult case than the uh, Ramosha's case because Ramosha's case didn't involve uh, mafreket. It just involved uh, uh, shooting uh, with a non penetrating bolt on the head of the animal afterwards, so there's more basis uh, uh, based on the ruling of the Ramah, uh, but nonetheless, the Schwartz would have gone out on a limb, but uh, didn't want to make waves. Okay, let's move on to the second simon. Second simon is uh, the old uh, question of, can you, instead of salting meat in order to remove the blood, so let's say, you know, like salt, or salt is very difficult. Your doctor said you can't have salt. Um, uh, you, you know, a person has a uh, particular uh, illness, um, uh, and uh, he has to stay away from salt. Uh, and uh, but the person would be perfectly fine with sugar. It's a sweet tooth, no problem. So can you use sugar instead of salt in order to do malicha? So this was the fascinating question. Um, so uh, Rav Schwartz uh, uh, was um, this was a uh, shiloh that was brought to him from a rub in Waterbury, and uh, Rav Schwartz uh, said that he he brought a number of the posts, including the Dachi Shuva, 
Munkar uh, who uh, brought uh, from a certain Sephardic poskim, who actually were lenient when it came to the question of using sugar as opposed to, uh, to salt, famous sheet of the Halachos Kitanos, of Yaakov Chagiz, a 17th century uh, Moroccan Rav, who was at Mekel in this particular regard. But he said that, you know, sugar doesn't quite have the same qualities as sodium chloride, and it really does not draw out the blood quite in the same, uh, in the same way. And uh, he quotes from the Ruach Chaim, I'm sorry? Um, well, apparently broiling wasn't actually, broiling is, you know, even though our minig is to salt a little bit before we boil, you only have to salt a little bit before you boil, and if you didn't salt altogether, so then the halacha is, as we passed it, the Ramah Paskins, that it would be perfectly mutter even if you didn't salt it altogether, but I guess the person, for whatever reason, needed cooked meat as opposed to roasted meat, but yes, like right, <laughs> because Rav Schwartz doesn't even mention that option, and there are other chewers as well that speak about this situation for people who can't handle salt, one is the Shevet Alevi of Shmuel Bozner, and his chuba as well, it's not really given as an option, I guess, because uh, it just, you know, wasn't shy for this person to have, you know, the roasted meat. Um, but in this particular uh, case, um, the Rav Schwartz says, very similar to the Shevet Alevi, he says, one thing that you could do is chalita. What is chalita? Chalita is if you take the meat before it's salted altogether and you just uh, scald it in very, very hot boiling water. So there is a, a Gemara um, in, uh, in Chulen Kofir Aleph that indicates that scalding um, would be good enough um, so that uh, the uh, blood would never come out. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, it would just kind of, you know, um, it wouldn't even be pirish, we makam la makam. It wouldn't even go from one place to another place. Normally, when you cook the animal, we're worried that the blood is going to be pierced. It's going to move from one place to another place within the animal, but it won't come out, so it's going to become muscle. When you scald this, so it's like you're eating it raw. It's going to remain in place forever. So therefore, you would be able to not even um, cook it afterwards as long as you scalded it first. Um, and and this was... Well, the, go, the, the Godim say, and this is born in Shulchan Aruch, the Godim say, nowadays, we really, this is in Shulchan Aruch, Simon Ayin Gimel, Sif Beis, a source of Gimel on page 5 towards the bottom, says the Gaonim Asulasuske. The Gaonim said that we don't really know how to do Chalita properly nowadays. We don't know really how to do it properly nowadays. There is, this is the, in the context of a liver that somebody wants to scald and then cook afterwards. Um, so you can't rely upon it. But elsewhere, when it's just talking about regular meat, um, the, the Shulchan Aruch and Simon Samak Zion uh, seems to indicate that maybe you could rely upon it, but that's really just talking about a case where, no, even if you scald, we can assume that if you salt afterwards, the blood will still come out. So some of the posts can explain it. So uh, it's a question to what degree we do really rely upon Chalita. But since it says, B'diyev and Mutter, um, so it's better, uh, said the Shevet Alevi, and says of Schwartz, to rely upon Chalita, particularly if it's scalding in uh, vinegar, which is considered to be a little bit better than if it's just hot water, it's considered to be better to do it that way than to use sugar, because it says sugar just doesn't work altogether. And this is, you know, a number of uh, the Shitas Dachichuva quotes and others that uh, sugar is basically garnished. It's a joke, you know. Um, so therefore, uh, better to do something that has a basis in the Gemara than something, than something which is considered to be a joke altogether. Now, would we rely upon this? No, because we, Rav Schwartz may have known how to do the Skalita thing, but it got lost with Rav Schwartz, so we at the CRC have to, we would not recommend this to anybody because we have no idea how to do this procedure of Chalitza. But Rav Schwartz gives another idea. The other idea is that when we do Malicha, when we salt meat, we generally have the meat so, uh, soaked in the salt um, for the meat is, sits in the salt um, for a full one hour. Um, but it's not really necessary. <coughs> really, the Shia Malicha is only 18 minutes. <coughs> It's kashir hiluch meal, the amount of time that it takes to walk a meal. Not walk off a meal, but to walk a meal. A meal is approximately a kilometer, and we say it generally takes 18 minutes to walk a kilometer. So therefore, Rav Schwartz says that you could rely upon those shitas that say that 18 minutes is good enough, um, and therefore you're not going to have as much salt, and maybe that would be good enough for this uh, particular uh, individual. Okay, so um, bottom line, sugar does not work for malicha purposes. Um, and um, there are other options in terms of either chalita, um, possibly tzli, although he didn't mention it, or malicha for only 18 minutes. Simon Gimel has to do with what if I have, let's say, something which had a forbidden substance on it, and now that substance is really like a completely um, rancid. <coughs> but I'm going to be using this substance together with food afterwards. So what's an example of that? In Schwartz's case, it was a barrel. It was a barrel that was um, spread over, 
that was smoothed over with uh, some mineral oil that may have come from prohibited fats. So the question is, is there a chash of iser to use these chavitim, to use this type of a barrel afterwards if it's going to come into contact with food? So the truth is that other posts have spoke about this in the context of, let's say, aluminum foil. Aluminum foil um, also, believe it or not, is uh, produced um, from uh, some uh, fats uh, that uh, came often from forbidden uh, sources. And yet we find the Minchas Yitzchak speaks about this, um, Ravavadi Yosef speaks about this, that it's considered to be perfectly okay. Why is it perfectly okay? Well, number one, whatever was there is certainly um, uh, balua. It's absorbed inside of the material in a fashion where it's an anal benyomo. So it's going to be no sing time of It would only convey a detrimental taste. And Ramosha is quoted, actually, um, by Ravaron Felder, as saying that if something always comes to you, in the form of an eno ben yomo, and therefore would be no same time lefkam, even though the Gemara says that it usually goes there an eno ben yomo, atu ben yomo, that uh, we have to worry that maybe you'll use something when it's still a ben yomo and it hasn't become rancid, um, uh, that's um, uh, only if sometimes it appears in a ben yomo form. But here, you're always going to get an eno ben yomo form, so therefore it's assumed to be mekel. Secondly, um, even that which, you know, some of the grease that might not have been fully absorbed is going to be so incredibly yucky, for lack of a better term, um, that um, after 24 hours, and certainly after a prolonged period of time, it's going to uh, be a, a dover hanifkam, it's going to be uh, something which is no same time lifkam itself. And thirdly, um, it's simply not um, edible in any sense of the word, even before it became an uh, eno ben yomo, it's mixed together with petroleum and other types of materials so that it's simply inedible. Inedible for a human being, probably inedible for a dog as well. So therefore, if something comes to you already in a fashion which it's completely inedible, you're not going to be eating it. You have no interest. In it. So you can't even say akshave. You have no interest in eating it. Um, and, um, and, it's, and, and it's 100%, you know, bottle when it comes to you. Uh, so therefore, uh, there's room to be mako in this uh, particular case. So that's what Rav Schwartz says um, in uh, this uh, situation as well. Um, even though it's uh, coming into contact with food. Rav Schwartz, uh, Schwartz quote of Moshe, but Moshe's case was a little bit easier than the aluminum foil case, which comes directly into contact with food. But Moshe's case was soap. So soap, you're not eating soap, you know, unless, you know, your child says a bad word. So in the olden days, you know, you have to, you know, eat the soap a little bit. That's a shy according to Ramosha. Um, but, um, but generally speaking, you're not going to be eating the soap. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, Ramosha, you know, for sure, uh, had that to uh, rely upon that there's you know, zero actuate when a person's not going to be eating it. But Ramosha, Rav Schwartz here, relied upon these two uh, different considerations. If you take a look at four lines before the end of the Chuba, we started from Hakim. We see us no same time with Gam. Shikvan Nivsal already is no same time with Gam. Already has a completely rancid taste. Kodim Shemini and Before you would have any absorption whatsoever, and therefore he says that there is no um, consideration of even being machmir to say, oh. Well, if it's a kli ben yomo, you have to be machmir. You have to be machmir because even if it will be a kli ben yomo, it's already spoiled from its taste. And the other uh, consideration that I would mention is uh, that which Ramosha said that this is always coming to you in an eno ben yomo form uh, anyway. Um, uh, so therefore, he was um, he was makel in this uh, case. But it goes to show you some of the shilas that came to Rav Schwartz really from all over when it came to these uh, new types of you know kashrus questions that you have materials, new materials out there that have you know forbidden fats on them. So Rav Schwartz ruled for example, the cast iron pots. The cast iron pots are often um, uh, smoothed over and smeared um, before they are manufactured or before they're sold for, um, uh, for, for consumer use. They're smeared with fats that, you know, could come from animal fats and could be completely, you know, us. And now, it's true, it's, a, it's no same time, you know, the fkam. On the other hand, you're going to be eating, you know, off of these uh, pots as well. So the, um, so the question, and here actually it's not necessarily that they're mixed together with other substances that make them putrid. It could be just the fats themselves that are put in. So it's only an uh, an uh, you know, type of situation, but it's not a situation where it was putrid, you know, to begin with. So therefore, Rav Schwartz actually ruled in that particular case, when you buy the cast iron pots, you should cash them. So he says you should cash them, but because of the fact that the, the substance that goes into them are liquidy, because it's fats, fats are liquidy, so therefore you don't um, have to say, so therefore it's not a, it doesn't require libun. It requires it's something which came into contact with liquid, so it could be kasha with liquid, so you can kasha it with hagola. So he says you could just put it into hot boiling water, but that's what he recommended with a cast iron pot. So he would get these shiles. He wasn't always so makel. In this so case, he was makel. The end? I mean, the water is there because it was the end? It, more than the other, like 
it's not a, it's not be'ain because it is balue in the pot, but nonetheless it could still be extracted from the pot uh, from the pot as an eno benyomo. So it's eno Right. So then why was he? Not so he said in this particular case he was goes there eno benyomo atzu benyomo, and also if you would use a davacharif, if you would cook something which would be a davacharif inside, so then it could take out the, even the tam which would be eno benyomo, and it could make it into a, into a good tam. You see, that's a consideration you didn't have in this case with the barrels because of the barrels, um, it was whatever was already there had been uh, made rancid, you know, in its own right, you know, even without being, let's say, an eno benyomo, it was just rancid by the fact that it was mixed with 99% petroleum. Um, uh, so, uh, so therefore, he was more mocking in the case of the cast iron pots because it wasn't mixed with anything. It was just forbidden fats, basically, that yeah. had become nibbling in the pot. Yeah, uh, the aluminum pans also are mixed with like a million things. Yeah, okay. So why do we need, why do we need a, a stuff on a pot with CLR? CLR? No, what is CLR? What is CLR? Oh, it's a cleanser. cleansing uh, thing. A cleanser? Oh. Yeah. I don't. I don't think that you need. I don't. I don't. I don't think you need a, a hexer in that if you're, you're not. You're not going to be. You know, eating. Are you talking about you cleanse the pots with it? Is that? Is that? Is that the issue? Oh, okay. Well, if it's more similar to the types of things that we're talking about here, where basically it's just completely rancid and you know can never um, be uh, extracted for any kind of a positive taste, so it could be that you don't necessarily need hexer. On the other hand, on the other hand, the products. Okay, the companies know that they'll be able to do a better job selling these products if they have a hexer. They don't have hexer, so they want a hexer. We always are very upfront and transparent with the companies if they don't really need a hexer. So you don't really need a hexer. So we want one anyway. So if they want it anyway, we'll give it to you if we determine that it's really kosher, right? Um, uh, for marketing purposes, like the companies that manufacture bottled water, for example. You know, so it's this, the same the same deal. Um, so that's what we tell them. So we just had a company right now that uh, asked us uh, to uh, give a hexer on some sort of an eye wash, which is made which is made solely from water. Um, of course, we have you know other shilos that arose with it having to do with the voters. But we're not getting into that right but now. The other okay. reason also is uh, some stores require that everything has a hexer on it, so they need. Can you go back a step on that? One other time. Yeah. I thought some stores require that things have a hexer, and that's one of the reasons. Why? Um, some stores, that's what I said, some of the companies, oh, some of the so stores. Some stores require everything else. That could be, that could be, that I don't know about, but that's not something that we would impose on the stores if we didn't right. feel that it was absolutely necessary. Okay, let's move right along because we want to cover the territory. Yes. What was the purpose of putting fats or oils in the manufacture of a pot? Well, you have to ask because I am manufacturers. No, it, it makes it not for the sake. It's certainly not for the sake of improving the taste of whatever's cooked on the pot. It's it's for, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's to prevent it's to prevent rust. Okay, yeah. to protect against rust. It makes right. It, it makes yeah. It's good for the metal. It's good for the metal. So that's why they do it. Okay, now let's move on for... Uh, thank you, Ira. Now we're, we're moving on to Simendal Bedin Gvinas Akum. Gvinas Akum. So we know that one of the Gezeris of Chazal is that you're not allowed to eat cheese that was manufactured by a non-Jew. What's the reason? So Chazal gave six, seven different reasons in the Gemara. It wasn't entirely clear. Maybe there'll be mami, maybe the rennet that they'll use will be non-kosher rennet uh, in order to uh, cause uh, the milk to be congealed to become a cheese. Um, maybe the problem is that it'll be left overnight and a, a snake is going to inject its venom into it. There were different reasons that were given by Chazal, but even the, the Rabbim says, he quotes the Gonim, that even if we know that nowadays that they do not use non-kosher rennet and it's only, you know, veg- vegetable rennet, um, and that's completely kosher that's used, nonetheless, it was like, as the Yorokashogun says, it was like Dovash of it was something where, you know, Chazal made an absolute decree, and therefore we don't go back on the decree. And that's how most poskim assume Venus Akum is going to be prohibited uh, no matter what. You need a Jew to participate in the cheese-making uh, process. Now, there's a big machlokis um, between the Ramah and the Shach, exactly what that means. In Simon Kuftes Vav and Yoradeh, for a Jew to partic- participate in the cheese-making uh, process, uh, this is uh, all the way on page 9 of the materials, moving right along, um, in Simendalid. So the Ramah says that basically you need a Jew, just like in the case of milk, um, we call it, you need a Jew to watch the milking process, you need a Jew to watch the cheese-making process. That's all you need. And the shock says, nah, watching has nothing to do with anything. When it comes to this, you need the Jew has to participate in the cheese-making process, to put in the rennet. 
the Jew has to put in the renter, and that's the practice which is followed by most of the Kashrus agencies. But it doesn't stop at that. We generally require both. And number one, the Jew puts in the renter. Number two, the Jew also sees the fact that, that, that the cheese is being made in the process. He doesn't close his eyes as he's putting in the renter. So he's watching the process as well. Um, because it could be that the ikkar is really like the Ramada. So the Arach HaShokhan says that the main thing that's required for kosher cheese making is uh, for the Jew to actually watch and observe the process. But the Shach says, no, it's not really necessary. All that's necessary is that the Jew, you know, contribute to the process or that the cheese be owned by a Jew. If the cheese is owned by a Jew, so then it's going to be perfectly okay. So what happened in this case that Rob Schwartz was dealing with was it was not a hard cheese a type of production. It was a soft cheese type of production. It was cottage cheese. Now, Rav Moshe Feinstein is a tshuva and Rav Yosef um, uh, Elio Henkin held the same way. They were both the two big posts of America. They both, you know, um, held that Mi'ikaradin, you don't really require the uh, different stringencies of Binas Akum when it comes to cottage cheese, when it comes to soft cheese. Why is it that you don't require it? You don't require it because, it, to begin with, there never was like a curdling process necessary. You didn't have to have an agent in order, in order to cause the curdling to take place. If you just left the milk, you know, by its own, it would turn into, you know, cottage cheese over time um, without the need of uh, some sort of a rent and some sort of an, an, an agent, a curdling agent. Um, and therefore, since the whole backdrop was not really relevant, um, so it's not, you know, really necessary to, to have this type of head show. Most, many people are machmer anyway, that we still require the, the stringencies of Venus Akum, but um, certainly there's room to be makel according to Rav Moshe and according to uh, Rav Henkin. But what happened in this particular uh, company was the question uh, became uh, as to whether you had to worry about uh, this uh, cheese uh, company because this cheesecake-making company, even though uh, they generally were set aside for the making of soft cheeses, but once uh, it happened, once or twice, it happened that they made hard cheese, and they made hard cheese um, in a... Um, a temperature of Yad uh, Soledispo, so therefore it could affect the kalim, it could affect the utensils, and the hard cheese, which really does require the supervision of Venus Akum, requires a Jew to watch or a Jew to you know, participate in the process, um, it, it wasn't, um, it, it didn't happen. No Jew participated in, in the process of uh, putting in the Reddit, and no Jew was watching. So therefore, maybe the utensils should all be, you know, trafe. So says Rav Schwartz, no, it's not necessary. Why is it necessary? He says that because... Um, in this particular case, in this particular company, um, one of the owners is a Jew. One of the owners is a Jew. And, and according to some of the postkin, even, like, remember the Shach said, if the cheese is completely owned by a Jew, so then that's good enough by itself. The whole Gzeira doesn't apply um, because, you know, the Jew will, you can trust the Jew to supervise the entire process. So, uh, therefore, he says that since uh, the, um, he, uh, some postkin say, um, he quotes a Prikadosh, that even if the Jew has only a, only a teeny tiny little portion of uh, the um, uh, of ownership in the cheese, um, so that would be good enough, and therefore it doesn't matter that it wasn't actually watched, that it wasn't actually seen. And this is a giant, giant, giant chiddush, and probably is only in a very bidiyevit sort of situation, because many poskim say that we're machmer like the shach, to require that a Jew <coughs> participate in the cheese-making process when it comes to hard cheese. But Meikor did we paskin like the Ramah. What does it mean, Meikor did we paskin like the Ramah? Meikor did we paskin that the watching of the cheese-making process is an absolute necessity. It's a sine qua non. The cheese is going to be no good if you don't watch it. In this particular case, it wasn't watched. So Schwartz did quote um, from, uh, some other, uh, from some other shitos, um, and he said that... Um, he, uh, that uh, there are those who are makel in a similar uh, in a similar situation. He quotes the, from the Rav uh, the Hamarash Engel. He used to like to quote from the Marash Engel. Who's the Marash Engel? Uh, Marash Engel was a Shmuel Engel. He was a big Rav in Galicia and then Czechoslovakia in the 19th, early and earlier 20th, 20th century. And um, Rav Schwartz, for whatever reason, big big fan of his, would always quote from his Jews. So the Rav Shmuel Engel was makel in this particular case. If you had a shuk for Israel. But um, he also did mention that the Jews should watch the process as well. Like maybe he was makele to say a Jew doesn't have to actually put in the rennet. You know, um, when it comes uh, to the making of cheese, if the Jew owns it, but he did require watching. So Rav Schwartz said, uh, we could be, um, we could be makele about that. There are those who are makele. There are those who are makele, but I have to tell you that by and large, the big cooler nowadays when it comes to Venus Akum are those hashkachos that are now saying, let's rely only on the Ramah. 
when it's very difficult for a Jew to contribute the cheese, like you know, the making the making cheese on Shabbos or something like that. So let's rely only on the mama to say that uh, the uh, all that's really necessary is the watching, and maybe the Jew will also own a little bit from the, the cheese as well. Um, uh, but to, to this idea to rely only on the Jew's ownership without the Jews watching uh, the process at all, so that uh, that's much more of a chiddush. But Rav Schwartz uh, was prepared to be makol at least bidiyevin um, in this uh, case. Uh, the other interesting thing is like uh, like the other chuba, the first chuba we quoted Rabbi Carno, who's the second Abbasin of the Chicago Medical Council. Here he managed to quote that the founding original. First First Abbasin of the Chicago Medical Council, of Chaim David Regensburg, Schwartz was very much a believer of tradition, the Mesoro, you know, the CRC, the big figures in the CRC. He had a lot of respect for his predecessors, um, and uh, hopefully I'm continuing that tradition. And um, of um, and of um, Regensburg, um, also he said, had a hurrah that uh, you can uh, rely uh, to a certain degree upon the fact that this particular cheese factory had the shutbus, that it had the shutbus of, a, of a, a Jew having a little bit of a chalak, a little bit of a portion of the ownership of this cheese uh, factory. Yes? When we say Jew, I assume we're talking about somebody who's shown results. No, Labdafka, Labdafka. In other words, that the whole Gezerah never got off the ground. If we say that the whole Gezerah of, of Gavina Sakum, of, the, um, of cheese of a non-Jew, um, is not something that has a clear reason nowadays, and it's only based on the fact that we're continuing the original Gezerah, so then it just has to fit within the parameters of the original Gezerah. The original Gezerah was if it was something that belonged solely to non-Jews. So therefore, if a Jew has a chalik, uh, you're right. It may not be dependent upon the svar of the Jew watching it over. I guess you still need to have a proper supervision, but this proper supervision doesn't always require looking at something every single moment. You're looking at the ingredients, you're looking at the equipment, so that's a chumr of Venus Akum to watch the actual uh, cheese-making process. Yeah. It wouldn't be the you used the word participation before. Wouldn't be the participation of turning on the fire to to cook the milk or anything like that, like 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 putting putting the rennet, putting the rennet, you know, into the machine as you're making the hard cheese. And again, this was only an issue because of the hard cheese. Rav Schwartz also mentioned uh, the cooler of emotion when it came to chalavakum in general. Um, that um, Rav Moshe said that you don't need um, that something be chalav Yisrael. Uh, for purposes of making cheese, because the Ramah says that when it comes uh, to uh, making cheese, uh, we generally don't worry about it being chal of Yisrael because only uh, kosher milk can actually congeal to become cheese. So he says, if you're going to be machmir about chal of Yisrael, you certainly don't have to be double machmir when it comes to making gvina. But that has to do with the source of the milk. That doesn't have to do with the, the, the restrictions of gvina sakum. I'll be honest, that part of the truth I didn't fully understand. Okay, next uh, issue. Uh, yes. Uh, what's considered ownership? Uh, even a tiny little bit. So what the pre-cartage says, even 1% ownership would be good oh, so ownership. So if you own the 100 yeah. shares of... Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, whatever, however... Yeah, you know, whatever whatever would be the actual ownership. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Not I've investment, seen, but ownership. Yeah. I've seen uh, hard cheese made by Kraft, brand that has an OU. Yeah. O-U-D, actually. But again, if they have the OU on the hard cheese, if they have the OU on the hard that means that there is a Jew who's participating in the cheese-making process, okay? Um, but, but if it's OUD, it just means that the, the origin of the milk is not chal of Yisrael. They're relying upon, upon chal of Stam, but they're still requiring a Jew to participate in the cheese-making process in order to put on their OU for Gvinas uh, Yisrael purposes. Yeah, or, or, or just watch, potentially. Or, or potentially just watch, but that's a relatively new cooler. That's a relatively new cooler that's being floated around by some of the Ashkafa agencies, and Rav Schwartz wasn't comfortable with that. It's funny. Rav Schwartz B'dievid was comfortable with this situation of Jewish ownership without Re'iyah, but he wasn't really so comfortable with Re'iyah without a Jew participating in the process if it wasn't owned by a Jew. It's kind of interesting. Uh, right. When that question was posed to Rav Schwartz, whether we could be stopping Mekel about that, because those Kashrus agencies were talking about being Mekel about that, he said he didn't want to be Mekel about that. He said that we're not going to reject cheese that comes from other Hashkafa agencies that rely upon it, but he didn't want to be Mako for purposes of the CRC. It's a really good question. Is that still the policy of the CRC? Yeah, I'm, uh, yes, uh, I believe so. Uh, it, the question did come up again in the last few months, but uh, we, we, we try to be Mako about it. The, uh, the, uh, the, I heard that Rav Shechter was uncomfortable with the, the notion of relying upon Jewish ownership if, the, uh, if you're not also going to have a Jew watching the cheese-making process. But again, that's all. Rav Schwartz was dealing with the Yevit situation. It's going to be the Yevit situation. Okay, let's talk about Simon Hay. Hagal of Shamash Rav Schwartz said they could keep making the hard cheese? No, he said that if it happened, you don't have to you don't have to invalidate the equipment. That's what he said. But he said no. He, he, he did not consider it something that should be done. No, 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 no. 
Uh, that's what he was saying. He was saying that the cheese that was done in this particular fashion um, uh, was okay. And the mashkiach who wanted to avoid giving a hefsher because he was afraid it would happen again, Mr. said, don't worry because even if it happened, it would be the but okay. But of course, if you don't want it to happen, the chatzkilo. Okay. Uh, next, tshuva is a hagolab shamash kachusmimayim. When you kasher a kalim that became trape, so the way you do hagolab is that you say, let's say a fork became trape or a spoon or a small pot. So you put into a big pot that's boiling with hot water. Let's say it's not hot water, but it's hot milk or hot juice. Or hot chocolate milk, right? So can you kosher in hot chocolate milk? That's a lot more fun, right? You know, can Willy Wonka kosher? So this is the question. Um, so that's a big machlokus. So the, um, the, the, the base Yosef brings a Ramban who says that you can't do it, that, uh, that other liquids don't have the same power to extract the, uh, the non-kosher um, taste the same way the hot water does. But the Rashba said that it was okay. Um, so Rav, Shecht, Rav Schwartz points out that there are those who say that even according to the Ramban, it's only a lechatchila concern, but even he would be mekel b'dievin. So you have one opinion we shown him that says that it's a mutter even lechatchila, and the other opinion that says that it's mutter b'dievin. So the Rama basically paskins in shochad arach simin tafnun base. We only kasher with hot water. Um, but if you use chocolate milk, it would be okay. That's what he seems to say. Well, that's what, so that's what he seems to say. Um, again, I, I, chocolate milk might be the wrong example for reasons that we'll go into. But he says, if you use milk or something, you know, that it would be okay. If you use, you know, some other type of a hot liquid. So the question was with a chocolate factory. Okay, so chocolate factory, if you would use hot water with the equipment, so then the moisture of the water could ruin the chocolate. So they did not want to kasha with water. They only wanted to run like hot chocolate. Okay, it was mamish Willy Wonka here. They wanted, only wanted to kasha with the hot chocolate. And they said, we don't want to put any water in our kingdom. Like water is like poison as far as, far as we're concerned. So the question was, could we allow them to kasha with cocoa bean oil? Okay, uh, Schwartz here does write out in transliteration. Oh, very, very difficult. Yes, yes. Sounds like cocoa benaville, but no, it's cocoa bean oil. So the question is, can you kosher with the cocoa bean oil uh, or not? So it's very interesting that he quotes from an Igros Moshe. The Igros Moshe uh, dealt with a uh, situation of margarine. Um, and which uh, there was a uh, company where they were using margarine and they would... Uh, and, and, uh, but the truth is, his situation was where uh, they were actually kashering, they were put, putting all of the kale into a hot water rinse just when no mashkiach was present. And uh, he said, you could really rely upon that, but if you don't want to rely upon that, so when the mashkiach is there, so have them, you know, run, they're going to run the first the production of margarine, that itself, you know, can kasher, and they won't use that margarine, and they'll use, you know, the next run of uh, margarine, and this itself can be perfectly okay. So it said, uh, Rafael Schwartz, uh, that um, uh, this runs to the following concern. There was some postman who said that this cooler that you could use Shah Mashkin Bidyevid, that only applies to something that started out as a liquid, or it started as a salad, and then a liquefied, so maybe that doesn't count. Maybe that's considered to be kashering to a salad. So he says, oh, but we see from our Moshe that the margarine, no margarine can be nice and hard. Um, and so the fact that he held that it was okay to kasher to margarine, so this in the case that it's perfectly okay. What Rav Schwartz did not mention is that the truth of the margarine was written by Rav Moshe in Tushin Chav Dalit, okay? Um, which is, I don't know, 1964, something like that. But in Tavshin Yudches, 1958, Moshe wrote a different shuva, and he never explicitly overrode that shuva. And the shuva there, this is on page 11, source Dalin, that shuva had to do with using, like, fat, um, uh, that, uh, uh, some sort of a fat that came from a meat. He says, that if you have some sort of a fat, maybe you can, um, uh, so w- maybe you can kasha with that, and you'll throw out the first run, and then you'll be able to use uh, the second, uh, the second run. So he says uh, that he's not really comfortable with that. Why is he not comfortable with that? Look at the third line. Back from the even though Ramo says, but the evidence is okay, mashke, with any type of liquid, that even oil and milk could be used, but maybe Shumanabasa, which originally comes from something which is solid, maybe that doesn't count. Therefore, he says, not even to be Mako, Bidiyevit. So some say that Rav Moshe really uh, held that you couldn't use something that started out as a salad. When he was dealing with margarine, he just, like, he wasn't focusing on, like, it being, he was thinking that this is, like, something which is always kind of, like, liquidy. He didn't, like, think of it as something, you know, which was a salad, per se. Because if he really was going to override his shuba from four years earlier, he should have said so explicitly, but he didn't address it explicitly. He just kind of, like, you know, mentioned the margarine situation, kind of like, you know, um, in, um, in passing. 
um, and uh, did not uh, go into this question of, oh, something starts out as a salad, yeah, can you use it, it if it becomes a liquid afterwards? Margarine, I think, I, I, I think when margarine is oil. made, isn't it, it's oil, oil comes out of solidified. Right, that's the thing, it starts out as oil. Oh, so he's saying oil. that because it starts out sort of, I, I think that's, you know, what we're saying. Yeah. So therefore, um, it could be that he viewed margarine more as a basic oil, but chocolate starts out as a chocolate bean, it starts out as something which is solid, so therefore it's not, you know, not everybody is as comfortable with this. So there's certain cautious agencies that were not allowed the cautioning of the chocolate, but um, Rob Schwartz allowed it for a few reasons. You know, number one, he said that the Kalim in question are Eno Ben Yomo, anyway. Um, number two, he said that it's a nap or not because they were going from dairy to, um, to parip. So therefore, there was no prohibited taste. It was, everything was a permitted taste anyway. However, he says at the end of the tshuva, well, if you hold it, it was of stam. So if you hold the chalof, if you really are careful about chalof stam, so maybe it really should be treated as, you know, something that's, that's an isser. So you can't rely upon that altogether. And number three, he said, you had the chemists. Uh, Schwartz, you know, always uh, believed in science. Schwartz, that's one thing about Schwartz, he believed in science. So we had scientists, we had the chemists that would come, and they would check out to see if there were any traces of uh, the uh, of the original dairy that was in there, because there were people who wanted the, the par of chocolate, who were, you know, very, very uh, lactose intolerant, who uh, were very midactic about the fact, whether Jew or non-Jew, that there shouldn't be any kind of traces of dairy whatsoever, um, and therefore they would have it checked out by chemists, and he quotes from Marasha, Mashol Meshiv, Marasha Engel again, and the Minchas Yitzchak, who all say that you can rely upon in the test of chemists. But the Minchas Yitzchak, interestingly, says, when is that? That's when the chemist is determining that something is not present altogether, as opposed to when they're determining that something that was present is bottled. But here, I guess you can say that they're determining that whatever process of cleansing took place really got rid of the dairy altogether, so you can rely upon it um, in this this particular case. So that was uh, Schwartz's... um, a kula based on this achuva of Rav Schwartz, despite the fact that we do have the kasha from the Igros Moshe that Rav Schwartz did not quote um, in Chelak Aleph Simen Samech. Nonetheless, since you know Klahorizokin, so we remain at least b'diavid makel about this in terms of the kasha with the chocolate based on this achuva of Rav Schwartz. Okay, Simen Vav. Begimas We know generally speaking, if you're going to kasha kli with hagola, we wait until the kli is not a ben yom, until it's more than 24 hours before the non-kosher substance went into the utensil. Why is that? Because if it was within the first 24 hours, so whatever comes out is going to come back in because the taste is still a good taste. So if I don't have shishim in the inside of the kli, in order to overcome the balia, the absorption that's in the walls of the kli, so it's not going to become bottle, and maybe it'll become a chatika nasis tevelu with all of the water, you know, that it comes into contact with, so it's just going to create a bigger problem when it goes back inside of the kli. So, therefore, we wait until the kli is not a ben yoma. But, let's say that you um, make the taste that, that is embedded inside of the kli, pogum, that you put a, a some type of an acerbic substance, like ammonium or something, you're going to put inside of the... Um, um, inside of uh, the utensil, and you're going to heat it up. Um, according to the Chazonish, you should heat it up so that it's actually boiling, so you can make sure that it's really going to um, penetrate uh, into uh, the uh, non-kosher absorption that's inside of the, uh, of the utensil. Um, and then, even if that absorption comes out, whatever goes back in is going to be pogum, and whatever is pogum is already rancid, is not going to create a problem of kashrus. So therefore, can you do that? Especially you're kashering for a simcha, and you don't have time to wait until the kalim in a hotel of more than 24 hours and so forth. Sometimes in a factory, you don't have 24, 24 hours from when they did the last production before you have to prepare for the kosher production line of that week and so forth. So can you be makel about this? And Rosh Schwartz held that you could be makel about it, and then you don't have to worry about what problem, what would the problem be? Very good. Um, that you should not nullify in the first instance something which is prohibited. So he points out nullifying something in the first instance is a problem when you're going to get a benefit. Like you actually want the forbidden food, either in terms of the volume of the forbidden food or the nice taste that the forbidden food is going to turn into once it becomes a permitted food. But here, you're not interested in the bleos, the absorptions that are in the utensil. You're only putting in something rancid so that you'll be able to kosher it. And, um, and he quotes from Yad Ephraim, um, who says uh, that, that this would be uh, perfectly, uh, perfectly okay um, because, of the, um, because of the fact that, uh, number one, it already is pogum once it gets mixed into everything else. And number two, you're not getting any benefit, not from the taste and, and, not, from, uh, and not from the volume. He could have also quoted from Iran in the Bodhisattva, 
<coughs> and Dapa Yud Beis and Beis and the Dapa Yerif, where the Rosh says explicitly that the problem of Eim Avalias to the Chatzila is only when uh, you uh, intend to get benefit from uh, the Yisur itself, but not when you are simply um, trying to be Mevatil in order to be Machshir the Kli, in order to Kasher the utensil. The Ryan says it explicitly. I think that's a really good source, so I would uh, recommend it. But anyway, um, that's the general practice of the Kashrus uh, agencies, and uh, this is what Schwartz gave a, um, an explanation for, uh, for that. Uh, moving away from Kashrus, which um, uh, gives us a full six minutes to do the last part, too, is no problem. Um, this is a very interesting question. Let's say you had a child, or, or maybe now it's an adult, who had a bris milah, had a bris milah, um, but the bris milah was performed by a non-from um, moel, by a non-observant moel. Um, so is it considered to be a, a good bris or not? Does the child need a hatapas bris? Does the child need a hatapas bris afterwards? Or let's say an adult. This was a situation of somebody who had a bris milah, wasn't a, for gayers, had a bris milah when he was a little child, through a moel was an avrayan who was uh, somebody who uh, was uh, not a shomer mitzvah, like maybe a non from surgeon or something like that, who happened to be Jewish. Happened there are to be women Jewish. Okay, we're talking about a male. A woman is a different shaila. It's a di- right. Related, related, but a different shaila. Uh, and now the question is, uh, does he need a hatapas dam bris? So Rav Schwartz says, well, since we know that this particular individual was not an adult, was nishtamish lara bialduso. What in the world does that mean? He's molested. I don't know what, what the terminology you know you want to come up with, but that's what Rishwas obviously meant. Nishtamish the Rabbi Alduso, he was mishandled um, when he was a child. He was molested when he was a child. So this person had a lot of trauma of anybody touching that particular area, and Rav Schwartz was sensitive to the human condition. He didn't want the person to have to suffer from trauma. So he said that we do have a machlokis um, between uh, the uh, Mechaber uh, and the Ramah when it comes uh, to these types of issues, where the Ramah is machmir, and he says uh, that um, you would not be uh, allowed to rely upon a bris milah from uh, somebody who is a non-observant uh, Jew, who's a mumer, uh, this is, if you take a look at source 12 in uh, the materials, so uh, the Mechavah simply says that everybody is okay, um, that HaKok Sheh Lama Lapilu Eved Yisha V'Katan V'Aro Yisrael, and then he says, A non-Jew should not perform a bris, but if the non-Jew performed the miss, the bris, he doesn't have to repeat it a second. The person doesn't need a toughest bris. That's basically what. So therefore, when Rashwat says you can rely on Machaber, he means you can rely on Machaber that if even for a non-Jew, you don't need a toughest bris, certainly for a Jew who happens not to uh, be observant. And even the Ramah, interestingly enough, and this is something Rabbi Akiva Eger discusses at length, um, even the Ramah who says that you would have to be Yesham the Chayim Laksu Dambris, then afterwards it talks about a Mumar. In other words, first he talks about the Naju, and he says, you have to do a Tavis Dambris, and then he talks about the Mumar. And he says, somebody who's not observant, somebody who's like an Apikorus, whatever, he's completely not observant. Or is the Mumar when it comes to Brismila. We treat him like an Ovikokharim. But what did he not say with respect to the Mumar? says Rabbi Kibbega. What he did not say is, and we would require a Tavis Dambris. So he says, the fact we split them up, in the case that in this case there's more room to be makele, and he quotes the Tosos, the Tosos in the Zara, Dav Zayin, who seems to indicate um, explicitly, because the Gemara there brings the Machokis, Rabbi Rabbi Yochanan, how do we know that a non-Jew should not perform Vismila? One says, Vatas Bisitishmor, he's not considered to be Babrist, and the other Rab says, um, Rabbi Yochanan um, uh, says that it's because of Himo Yimo, um, uh, that the, um, only somebody who is subject to receiving a bris mila, can actually perform the bris mila. So he says, well, we could have brought as a nafkamina, you know, so the Gemara says, so what's a nafkamina between these two, these two different shitas? It says an isha. Because an isha is considered like she has a bris mila, because she's Jewish, um, but she doesn't have an obligation, you know, to have an actual bris mila, so she's not in the pasha about us to be see tishmore. So he says, even when it comes to a woman, the Ramah simply paskins that no again It's better to use a man. It seems to hold that Miyikra didn't you could use a woman. And Tosu says that, that this same Nafkamina would apply to a Mumar, somebody who is not observant, that if they're not observing, he's talking Mumar Larelus, but Rabbi Kiva Eger says it applied to any Mumar, and if the person is not observant, so he mo he mo, so he's in the parasha of Brismila, because he's Jewish, so therefore for sure he would be okay. He just wouldn't be okay in terms of Atas Bishitishma. So why didn't the Gemara bring that Nafkamina? So he says, because he would even be okay in terms of Atas Bishitishma, because he's really Chayvimitsos. He's just, you know, if he would want to do it, 
so he was in Mitzvah. So Rabbi Kiva Eger said that he thinks that there's much more room to be made with respect to a Mumar. So um, so Schwartz quotes Rabbi Kiva Eger, and he says that therefore he thinks you can be Mekah. I've seen Schwartz be Mekah about this issue also with respect to, to Gerus. If you had, uh, let's say, a child who uh, had a uh, bris milah, let's say, that the family was in the process of becoming Jewish, but they didn't know about orthodoxy. So they like, went to a conservative gear, so, you know, and they had a conservative, you know, a, a moral who was not observant, who was not Shomer Shabbos. Now the question is, do you do a hatafist bris? So Roshwas Lechatchila required a hatafist bris because he quoted from a Moshe Rosen, a Nezer HaKodesh, who was a big postsec in America, was a friend of the Chazanish, came from a, a Europe originally, and uh, the Moshe Rosen said, you can really be Mako, but we're afraid if we're going to allow the non-firm, then people will start you know, thinking it's okay to use a non-Jew as well. Um, but Roshwas said, if you're dealing with a child, who is going to a bris milah, who already had, you know, a bris milah to a non moa, and it's more traumatic to do hatafist bris for a young child than for an adult, you can only imagine. So Schwartz thought that there was more room to be made with respect to a child. You had a question, yes, then. Well, I think you answered it. Was this specific to the molestation case, or like the, the, or more of a general... Right, so that, well, not in general, but in certain other appropriate circumstances he would be make. Um, so we'll stop here, and it's a shame next time we'll uh, complete the other two. Okay. Right. Okay.